Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's extra episode, I'm sharing a conversation I had recently with Colin Hansen. Colin Hansen is editor-in-chief at the Gospel Coalition, and he's also the author of an intellectual and spiritual biography of Tim Keller called Tim Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation. I think it's fair to call Tim Keller the accidental celebrity. When he went to New York City to found Redeemer Presbyterian Church in the 1980s, a clear-eyed assessment of his chances for success would have probably placed that number very low. He didn't do any of the things that wannabe celebrities might have done. He didn't have a radio program or a TV program. He was not a fiery orator. There was no rock band. Yet over the years, the church did in fact grow. In fact, it grew to the point that some call Redeemer and Tim Keller himself among the most influential churches and church leaders of the past half century. Colin Hansen has been a friend and colleague of Tim Keller for decades, and he augmented his personal experience with first-rate research to produce the book that we'll be discussing today. Now, before we get to the interview, I want to mention that I did an interview with Tim Keller just before he died, and you can find a link to that interview in today's show notes. And I also wrote an appreciation of Tim just after he died, and you can find a link to that article, too, in today's show notes. But first, here's my interview with Colin Hansen. Colin, welcome to the program. Uh, You know, you and I spoke, I don't know, has it been a couple of years now when you did Gospel Bound? when When did that book come out? That's right. That was 2021, so April 2021, so just over two years. Yeah, and and uh, of course, when the Tim Keller book came out, I was obviously fascinated by the book, but I had just had you on the program, and my ben- my benevolent overlords would not let me bring you on again. So um, I, uh, I'm glad, even though I'm sad for the occasion, which of course is Tim Keller's passing, um, I'm glad to have you back on the program to talk about your book and to talk about Tim and your relationship with him. So. Uh, yeah, let's, I guess, start uh, th- with, um, uh, you know, condolences. I, I, I knew Tim a little. You knew him well. Um, I, I, I experienced uh, the loss of Tim Keller, even not knowing him very well. So I know your loss must be profound. So you, so um, God bless you. You have my condolences. Thank you. He, uh, he's, um, he's missed. <laughs> There's no other way to, way to put it. We just, um, we just miss him, but we do like to talk about what we learned from him and what, uh, what the Lord's done through him. Well, and that causes me to pivot to your book because I, I think it is fair to say that the book, Tim Keller, his spiritual and intellectual formation signals from the very title that it is not a conventional biography, that you are, um, you just mentioned what you learned from Tim, but what the book is about is largely what Tim learned from others and how it shaped his ministry. Is that a fair assessment? It is. I, I don't. I don't know if it was a good idea or a bad idea. I don't think I've ever seen another book like that. But it's the kind of book that made sense for anybody who knew Tim. 
that's the way he talks about things. You don't, you don't, you didn't hear him pontificate about his great contributions and insights. He would always couch them in light of not only the scriptures, um, ultimately, where that he preached for nearly 50 years in his ministry, but but also just all kinds of other things that he was reading over time. So you got the sense that um, he was just kind of passing along what he learned from those other people, which I don't think was entirely true. Uh, but it was certainly the way that he, I mean, he did learn from so many other people. That's the whole point of the book. But uh, it was also just kind of how he carried himself. He didn't love talking about himself, but he did, he did love talking about what he'd learned from others. Yeah, so more a synthesizer and an integrator might be, uh, I guess, a couple of words to use to describe that. But I also want to push back on you a little bit, uh, Colin, because you said you don't fully buy that. You don't fully buy that assessment that he is merely, and I, and, and I, don't, I don't mean to use the word merely in a pejorative sense at all, because I think that—, I think that uh, let's say simply or only a, a synthesizer and integrator. And I assume by that you mean that he was an original thinker in some ways. Well, I, I think when you synthesize that much in that many different ways, you can't help but be original. I mean, what it would are any of us except for synthetic thinkers? We we don't have only God creates ex nihilo. <laughs> the rest of us are just piecing it together. So in that sense, Tim was different mostly in the sense that he showed his work. Um, I saw somebody referred to, I think it was Jared Wilson, he'd referred to many unwitting, happy plagiarists with Tim Keller. People would be preaching something that Tim Keller first said, not knowing that it came from him, but Tim himself would borrow so widely from other people. That's pretty standard for preachers, not the plagiarism, but simply if you have too many completely original ideas, it probably just means you're a heretic. <laughs> so he was pulling from so many different folks, I think. But if the rest of us have maybe one or two or three or five people that we love to read and we've benefited from and that we've tried to integrate it into our lives, I, Tim had more than 50. That was the major difference was the sheer volume of people that he learned from. And, you know, since Tim uh, passed away, uh, I guess it's been, what, 10 days ago now, um, there have been a lot of folks showing up on the interwebs, as, as I say ironically, to uh, uh, name some of those sources. They uh, have, you know, they named John Stott, J.I. Packer, Charles Taylor, uh, and and others. Um, who would you put on that, on the short list? You said Tim drew from over 50, but... We don't have time for fifty. Who would be on your short list? Did I name the Did I name the right ones? I well, mean, you name you name several of them, but I think all you need to do is go back to his book, "The Reason for God" in two thousand eight, and you'll see that the top three influences that he lists there. Now, the first one he lists is his wife Kathy. Um, she she's listed because, as he said, everybody else I learned starting with her. Um, so they, they met as college students and then they went to seminary together and they dated, they were best friends and they dated, then they got married. So a lot of that was developed together. And Kathy is such a formidable figure in herself that she introduced him to C.S. Lewis. Well, specifically, I should say the fiction of Lewis, because he'd learned, he'd picked up mere Christianity from the other students at InterVarsity at Bucknell in the in the late 1960s. But uh, the other is Jonathan Edwards. And that, that, that came especially in seminary from Richard Lovelace. But there was also a connection to, to Kathy there. Uh, Kathy's from Pittsburgh. 
in the Pittsburgh area in the late 1960s, early 1970s was that area was home to not only R.C. Sproul, but also John Gerstner, a couple of people who were teaching a lot about Edwards at the time. So, so she picked up some of that before they headed off to Gordon Conwell. And uh, so, yeah, those are the those are the main three influences. Kathy, you know, out outshines all of them. Uh, in terms of influence intellectually, spiritually, and otherwise, but um, uh, definitely Lewis and Lewis and Edwards are at the forefront there. Yeah, um, the, the, one of the things that was all is also uh, impressive about uh, Tim, and you mentioned it in the book, and I I uh, seen other people heard other people said this as well is that. You know, it, it wasn't a one-and-done kind of thing with him. In other words, he didn't read John Stott in college and never pick him up again, or J.I. Packer in college and never pick I mean, he was constantly learning, constantly reading, constantly rereading. A couple of folks that I just want to um, say out loud and and see what, you know, get your reaction, Colin. One would be Charles Taylor, A Secular Age, which, you know, Tim was was well into, you know, maturity whenever Charles Taylor's book came out. And yet that book had a profound impact on him, didn't it? It did. In in fact, that was one of the things that stood out to me most when I was writing this book was how in 2008, he's publishing The Reason for God, same time that Charles Taylor's were a kind of magnum opus is coming out. Taylor had published widely before that, but really a secular age brought everything together. And in the course of doing that, which he'd picked up from his friend James Davison Hunter, who introduced him to a number of different social critics, including Charles Taylor, it began to profoundly affect and reshape the way he did apologetics and the way he preached, especially under the conditions of of the kinds of secularism that Taylor describes in that book. And so it did. It changed all kinds of different things. And you can see that pretty clearly in in an eight-year period, starting from the reason for God, uh, then shifting into Tim's book, Making Sense of God, in 2016. So Taylor was a was a major influence. But you're right, not a not until the mid 2000s. Yeah, another uh, person that I want to uh, get you to react to is the theologian Herman Bavink. I think I've pronounced it. It, it. It's a it's a name that I acquired via reading, so I'm not sure I pronounced it correctly. But uh, you know, it's interesting to me that um, you know you you think of some of the lions of you know the Reformation and beyond, Calvin, Luther, uh, and you know, and, and of course Jonathan Edwards, who was a big influence. Uh, but you know, Herman Bavink was a 19th century guy, and um, I, and I, you know, I've been traveling in reform circles for 40 years, and I've just kind of started hearing his name over the last 10 or so years. Have I just been asleep at the switch, and um, or or is that accurate? And and is it true, uh, as it seems to me that that Tim started referring to him more in the uh, at least towards the end of his life, even though I think he was exposed to him much earlier. He was. That's right. So uh, he got to know Bavink's work early on through Roger Nichols, although going all the way back to his seminary days at Gordon Conwell. Um, but the thing was, there just weren't a lot of those works that were translated out of Dutch into English at the time. So that was the major reason that Tim and others didn't didn't get to know him as well. And there's been a more recent revival, especially through one of Tim's um uh, younger colleagues, uh, James Eglinton at the University of Edinburgh. He's been kind of a one-man uh, power, academic powerhouse of, of cir- circulating Bavinck's works and translating a number of them. He's not been alone in that, but he was certainly a conduit for Tim to be able to locate 
his project around some of the basic ideas of what Bavink and Abraham Kuyper uh, were, were known as, as neo-Calvinism in the late 19th and early 20th century. And the, the simple idea of it, just two of them, and I think will help people to understand why Tim resonated with them so much, it was simply that Reformed theology is for all of life. It affects everything we do, everything we are. It's not merely some kind of salvation thing over there. It is the A to Z. It's everything in life. That's number one. The second is that neo-Calvinism specifically brings orthodoxy to bear in a modern context. And I think when you when you look back on Tim's life and, and you put him in, in a broader context, there have been these moments of Reformed theology that combine that modern and orthodox dynamic. John Calvin combined that in a cosmopolitan type environment in Geneva. Jonathan Edwards combined that as he was working through this transatlantic awakening in the mid 1800s. And then you jump forward and you see that in, in Kuiper and Bavink in the Netherlands in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And so what, what Keller found so compelling was that they were dealing with many of the conditions of secularism emerging in early 20th century uh, Europe that we would only begin to come to terms with in 21st century America. So it was a he was a, a peer, a reading peer of his of saying, how do we stay orthodox, connected to historic biblical doctrine, but applied in a modern context? Mm. You know, uh, Colin, I have uh, heard that um, kind of what you just described uh, or what you just articulated uh, described in shorthand as neo-Calvinism not only um, teaches us or shows us or directs us in the, you know, points us in the direction of not just of what we are saved from, hell, sin, and death, but rather what we are saved for, uh, and uh, the the, uh, the restoration of all things ultimately. And it seems to me that this might be, um, you know, kind of pivoting on that idea to talk about Tim in the context of New York City, because um, even though we've been talking about books and people uh, that shaped Tim, I wonder if you could comment on the extent to which the city itself shaped him. Uh, that uh, he, he obviously came to New York City with a specific vision. Uh, he was, you know, he raised money around that vision. He articulated that vision to funders. But did it change once he got there, or did it mature and adapt once he got to New York? And that's interesting. I don't think I've given this probably as much thought as I as I should have. Uh, clearly, Tim did change with the city, but th- I think it's in part because Tim was a true missiologist. He was a true contextualizer. And so it didn't really matter. I mean, being in Hopewell, Virginia, in rural Virginia as a pastor coming out of seminary, that changed him. Um, and then so did New York. But what's interesting reminds me of um, when he was a pastor in Hopewell, Virginia, there was a, a moment that people recall of it was back when the Washington football team, now the commanders, they were playing against the Pittsburgh Steelers in the Super Bowl. And Tim sort of like takes off his shirt to reveal a, a Washington football shirt underneath. And people are like, that doesn't sound like Tim Keller. And it wasn't, it, you know, it was what he was doing in Hopewell because people there cared about it, but it wasn't really his interest there. Um, I think in fact, he was revealing himself to be a Pittsburgh fan. I think he was mocking them, something like that, but anyhow. And so New York in a similar way is it's, he was missiological. he, would contextualize to that that place. So in some ways, 
you know, you definitely will always associate Tim Keller with being in New York, but how much did he change? Well, he, he adapted to that environment, but he was still in many ways the same person who grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And if he'd been in a different environment, if he'd been in Boston, he probably would have adapted to that place as well. And I don't mean that he would have adapted or changed or compromised his views. Um, what I mean is simply he would have taken different interests in things like Tim was a drum major in his marching band. He was a trumpet player. He loved jazz. Maybe that's one of the reasons why he introduced um, jazz music for a lot of the different services at Redeemer. I'm not sure. Or it could have been because that was a particular kind of music that was especially that that, that appealed to folks in Manhattan, because I don't remember any jazz services at Hopewell. Virginia. So it's kind of, it's just, I'm not sure how to answer it in part because Tim just tended to adapt to that environment of whatever would be appropriate for that particular, particular place. I will say one thing that will always be associated with Tim in New York though, is he loves show tunes. Um, but he grew up that way um, in Allentown with his mother. It was one of the things that he was allowed to listen to was show tunes. So it was a good fit for him near Broadway. Yeah. Uh, a couple of other um, family-oriented things I want to ask you about, Colin. One is Kathy. We've already talked about Kathy a good bit. Um, you know, you in the context, you talked about her in the context of just what a huge, imp- you know, f- impact she had on Tim's life. Uh, after the church was founded, uh, Kathy also had a big impact on kind of the management of the church and the management of Tim, if I could put it that way. Um, that uh, one of the things that they always comment uh, uh, about Tim was just what a nice guy he was and what a people pleaser he was, um, to, uh, sometimes even to a detriment. And that I'm, I'm wondering to, to what extent you would characterize Tim and Kathy's relationship as sort of, a in so, at least in some contexts, a good cop, bad cop relationship. Is that, a, is that a fair way to describe that relationship? They were such an interesting couple, and it's one reason why this is such a difficult transition, because those of us who know Kathy know of how especially close uh, they they have been, and especially that they were in these recent years since Tim got his pancreatic cancer diagnosis in 2020. This is the most time that they've spent that they had spent together, going all the way back to to seminary. And so, I think what I what I notice in in Tim's life is he was always closely associated with very strong, outspoken women, and that goes all the way back to his mother, and that includes Kathy. And that doesn't mean that there was any sort of similarity in terms of those relationships. I would just say Tim has always been comfortable working with and alongside very strong and very opinionated opinionated women. And I'm sure in many different ways, like I, I was going back looking over some old, old Gospel Coalition videos with Tim and Kathy, and you could learn so much from Tim just listening to him, obviously. But you really didn't understand Tim unless you were calling him and you could hear Kathy in the background or you, or Tim would just, you know, stop. And then was that Kathy? Well, oh, you want, you know, OK, then then give that feedback. And then when you see them together, it's like a whole new dimension of, oh, and you realize, oh, Tim's funnier than I thought he was. And oh, wow, Kathy's got some really strong views on things. Um, you, you just, 
they really drew out so much of the best in one another. And one of the things that people said to me working on my book is that without Kathy, Tim would have forgotten to drink water. And I thought, well, that's kind of an interesting metaphor. And then I realized, it, no, that's an actual literal thing. That Kathy would show up with water reminding Tim to drink, like he would get so focused on things. And so Kathy, in many ways, such a formidable figure, she did devote herself so much to encouraging and supporting Tim. And um, and there's simply no way to imagine who Tim Keller would have been without her influence throughout nearly his entire Christian life and entire entire ministry. So um, that's one of the things I hoped had come across in my book that I don't think has been explored elsewhere. Yeah. You know, uh, Colin, your book is far from a hagiography. I mean, it, 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 uh, you did, uh, you know, talk about some of Tim's faults and limitations and shortcomings, especially uh, in the arena of um, management. I, 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 I would characterize Tim as a brilliant leader and a mediocre manager. Is that fair? Well, I'd probably just go ahead and say bad manager. Um, so, you know, I, I think this should be an encouragement to so many of us in different aspects of church leadership that um, you're just not going to be good at everything. And I, I mean, hopefully we we see that with more leadership studies where you might excel in certain areas, but it doesn't mean that you're some sort of a bad person or a bad leader because you don't excel in every area. But I do think it's an expectation we often have for pastors. And and simply put, Tim, he came to New York, he and Kathy and their boys came to New York at a time when the Lord was doing a mighty revival. And they did not start all of that themselves. There were some really strong ministries like executive ministries working through crew, some people like the Clanknecks who'd been there working for decades before the Kellers ever got there. But there was a unique teaching ability and vision cast that God gave Tim that really brought it all together. But it did not take long for that to rapidly outpace his ability to manage the actual structures that would take place. And Tim himself talked often about the differences between institutions and movements. And I would say Tim was very much a movement kind of person. And other people would have to come behind him to erect those institutions to be able to manage that. Um, and so I, I think what, what the credit to him is that he, understood that. Sometimes it was painful in an understanding, but uh, he understood that and he staffed accordingly because that's the way it works in the body of Christ. We simply are not going to be good at everything. So the best we can do is, is try to be godly, try to improve where we can, and trust God to work through others to compliment us. Yeah. Colin, I'm going to ask a couple of what I might call devil's advocate questions here. Um, you know, I, I had uh, the opportunity to talk with Tim back in December um, for, for this podcast, as a matter of fact, and um, asked him a little bit about race uh, and racial questions and racial issues. And uh, he honestly kind of deferred on the question. He said, you know, as a white guy of my generation, I just don't feel like I'm, you know, really qualified to you know, to give advice or to talk about this topic, which, you know, okay, fair enough. I get that. Uh, but I do think that um, it, that posture might be seen by some as 
avoiding the question. And, you know, and I think it's fair to say that Redeemer, uh, while there was some diversity at Redeemer, uh, probably not the same level of diversity as there is in New York City as a whole. I mean, it's a, it was a pretty white, pretty upper middle class to affluent crowd. Um, at least that's the way I think most people would characterize it. I, I, you know, when you've got a church with 5,000 people, you can probably follow them one of just about everything. But I, th- I don't think my characteristic is grossly unfair. Uh, react to some of what I've just said. I mean, uh, is that, am I, am I um, out in left field or does some of this make sense? Well, I think it helps to understand why these issues are so complicated because, for example, I would say that compared to most churches, Redeemer has been and continues to be incredibly diverse, but see not in the way that we have chosen to describe diversity, because that church was one of the largest Asian American congregations in the country. So if you were coming from a place like where I am in Birmingham, Alabama, and you went to New York and you went to Redeemer, you would think that it was incredibly diverse because there are so many more Asians there. But because socioeconomically and educationally, Asian Americans have so much overlap with that same group of Caucasians in Manhattan, it doesn't really get attributed the same way. And also because there are really deep histories of Presbyterian missions in Korea as as well. So there's a lot of overlap with Korean and then also Chinese Americans. So that's, that's that's one dynamic. And I would also say that the broader Redeemer network certainly planted and supported a lot of churches and a lot of different in those more diverse areas like Queens and whatnot around New York City. But Tim was very self-consciously leading a church in Manhattan, you know, downtown, Upper West Side, Upper East Side. And and, and that is a little bit less diverse than New York City as a as a whole in that regard. Um, what was your other, there was another comment I was going to make. I can't remember what it was. Um, anyway, we can come back to that, but that's, that's, the, that's the main idea is that it just kind of depends on how you, how you look at that diverse question. Oh, I remember what I was going to say as well. Um, this is one thing that I thought was helpful about just what I was trying to explore in my book. Um, Tim was, when you went to college in 1968, And you'd grown up in an environment in your family and in your church that was very strongly anti-Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., as well as anti-civil rights. That's going to affect you quite a bit. And for Tim, he had to wrestle through the dynamic of, of really having been lied to by his family and by his church about civil rights. And that's the part that affected him throughout his life. So in one sense, it kind of put him in a tough spot because compared to some people, they might see that and automatically think of him as some sort of liberal, but he was probably being self-conscious about saying, well, a lot of young people today see King as part of the problem, not as part of the solution. So in that sense, he definitely was not trafficking with some of the more aggressive, progressive young activists when it comes to racism. And I think probably more pe- a lot more people can associate with that a feeling like, oh boy, I'm caught between two different views here of I'm not nearly as conservative as that group, but I'm not nearly as liberal as that group. And so Tim was a representative of a lot of different people who on racial issues found themselves somewhere in that middle where they they were very eager to to embrace certain aspects of diversity, but at the same time, not at all eager to change any of the core doctrines and commitments of the faith, especially for Tim, his focus on the gospel and his focus on how justice flows out of that gospel and diversity flows out of that gospel. One of the stories he often would tell 
was how in his church in Hopewell, he would preach the gospel and people would then repent of their racism. But it wasn't necessarily because he preached on racism, but because he preached the gospel and the Holy Spirit did that work. So you know, it's kind of interesting, just depending on where you're coming from. And that's fairly typical, I think, Warren, of of most issues with Tim, depending on what vantage point, he either looked pretty liberal or pretty conservative because he was somewhere in that broad middle. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, um, looking uh, liberal to some and conservative to others, uh, that posture made him a target, especially in the social media era, of uh, a target of four people who perceived that Tim didn't speak up as forcefully or aggressively as they wanted him to on the issues that they cared about. Um, in fact, even just today, uh, I got an email because we had, we've published some things that are, you know, fairly complimentary about Tim, uh, as re- you know, as recently as today, but probably several times over the last couple of weeks, you know, I got uh, emails from people saying, you know, didn't you know that Tim Keller promoted homosexuality in his church? Well, I, of course, I know enough about Tim to know that that's n- nonsense, but it did not... Um, you know, however nonsensical I might perceive it to be, or however lacking in evidence uh, that position might be, it it didn't keep that person from lobbing that grenade, right? Um, th- this was not, ha- I mean, this happened, this has been happening for years. Uh, and, uh, Tim was aware of it. Um, what was his posture towards that kind of criticism? Well, I think he I think he understood it at a certain level. I think he he believed that the social media era poses unique challenges for church leaders. And this is a lot of the work that I do through the the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics and through the Gospel Coalition is trying to help church leaders to understand how much has changed in the internet age. Um, one of the challenges is that our media and our politics and our social media algorithms, tend to align just about everything in a bifurcated black and white or red and blue and good and evil. And it isn't so much what you believe, but simply your opposition to the other side. As an evangelist and as an apologist, Tim was simply allergic to demonization of the other side. Now, people might say, well, yeah, but he was fairly critical in his third way approach to this side, too liberal, this side, too conservative. Well, yeah, I think if you want to criticize him for that, that's that's possible. He may have used some caricatures sometimes to refer to religious people over here or to licentious people over here. But he was continually trying to make a point that when the world tries to tell you that they are justified because the other people are worse, you need to reject that because you have to stand before a holy, righteous, and just God. And it's not going to do to say, thank you, God, that I wasn't like those woke people over there, or thank you, God, I wasn't like those crazy fundamentalists over there. You're going to have to account for yourself. And the only way to do that is to plead the the blood of Christ. That's the only thing you're going to be able to do. That's the message that he continually wanted people to understand but that was continually threatened by people who wanted to push other agendas, typically related to partisan approaches. And that doesn't mean that there aren't some legitimate causes. It's simply that he could not sign up wholesale with either side and he refused to demonize. But when you do that in a social media era, when you refuse to demonize, you refuse to choose a side, 
you're going to come across to both sides like a compromiser. And that's basically the, the peril for anybody today in Christian leadership, especially if they're leading an institution that's trying to bring people together, that's trying to unify, is the all of the incentives in our media climate, our social media climate, our political climate are toward not so much ideological extremes, because I think in some ways on economics and things like that that we used to debate, our parties are fairly similar in a lot of ways for better or worse. But through a lot of pseudo event culture war type things, so much of what we see now is symbolic. And Tim was not inclined to jump in on a lot of those symbolic debates. Now, if people want to say he should have said more about marriage, he should have said more about abortion. Those may be fair critiques. That's not what I'm trying to say. But he just simply refused to get drawn into all of those other debates because he wanted to stay focused on, on the gospel. It's going to be up to us to figure out if that's still a viable strategy. But I'll just say, at least for my part, it's better than the full-blown, unthinking partisanship that I see way too much of on both sides. Yeah. Colin, I really appreciate your time, and I know we need to draw to a close here, but I hope you'll indulge me a couple of more questions that maybe will help us land this plane. And uh, one of those questions uh, relates to prayer. Uh, you know, when you when you uh, compress, as you did in your book, um, you know, a 50-plus a year ministry into a few hundred pages, uh, a whole lot of the nothing, what I might call nothing time gets left out. What, what, what get, what gets put in is the, is the times where something happened, something, there was movement, the church was formed. And, um, but, but I, you know, my, um, sister Jackie Arthur and, uh, her husband Lane, uh, who you quoted in the book were, um, were part of the church in the early days, and they um, both have spoken to me often about just the importance of prayer in those early days. Can, uh, first of all, do they have that writing? Can you say more about that? I think I quote them in the book on that topic. So yeah, one of the things that stood out to me, and uh, this one reason why I called Early Redeemer the land of yes, it was because there was a story that stood out to me of Church Thurston, 1989, 1991 is the Gulf War, first Gulf War. And the members of the church would talk about these around the clock prayer meetings that they would have. And what was interesting is that it's not like Tim Keller was at those prayer meetings, not because he wasn't praying, but because there were a lot of things that happened in the church that he said yes to that did not have to involve him. But uh, one of Tim's major influences was Jack Miller. And one of the things that he talked about was this frontier, you know, outward facing prayer, these bold prayers for the advance of the kingdom, not just about your own health concerns. Those are valid, but but these you know, kingdom barrier breaking uh, kinds of prayers. And that was the kind of culture that Tim had helped to establish. And it's what he had seen in, in Jack Miller, which is one of the reasons why he had had everybody read Outgrowing the Ingrown Church from Jack Miller in those early days. But I think you see in, in the end, the theme that Tim probably did come back to more and more and more. If I were writing the book today, I haven't thought about this and I haven't said this anywhere else publicly, but if I were writing the book today and I was adding a section on how he died, of course, I would have to make the primary focus on prayer. Because that's clearly, at the end of the day, when you're not able to write and you're not able to teach and you're not able to travel, your your world begins to shrink. And of course, you're facing eternity. 
And what did he continue to emphasize was the need for intimacy with God in prayer. And it was a consistent theme throughout his life, but you're right, that is difficult to kind of capture what that meant. But he took great lengths at the end of his life to talk about just the significance of that. And I got to say, it's something that I've learned a lot from him, but I, I just, I continue to struggle with. And it's something I aspire toward in part through his example. Mm. Uh, one of uh, Tim's, um, you know, influences was Jonathan Edwards, and one of the things that um, was said about the great, first Great Awakening that Jonathan Edwards was a catalyst for was that, you know, not only were did people come to faith, but it really changed the culture that, you know, brothels and bars, brothels and taverns, uh, you know, went out of business in the aftermath of the First Great Awakening. Um, some people have said that the, that the resurgence of Redeemer and sort of the revival that took place in New York had a similar salutary effect on the city that many people know of New York City of the 70s and 80s um, was not a great place place to live, not a great place to visit. Uh, a lot of folks give, you know, Rudy Giuliani and, and uh, you know, broken windows policing and so on and so forth, the credit for that. Um, to what extent do you think uh, Redeemer Church uh, deserves some credit for the resurgence of New York City in the 1990s and beyond? Yeah, I mean, I I was born in, in 1981, and so I don't remember a lot of that. My parents took me as a young child to New York to visit my visit my aunt, but I don't I don't recall much of it. But um, of course, in 1970s, 1980s, New York was a a very difficult place in a lot of ways. The the white flight epidemics, the 1960s and 1970s, have been devastating, and even by 1989, despite the fact that you have a pretty radical turnaround with with financial policy and Wall Street and the yuppie revolution and all that kind of stuff, they was still not the same place. Tim would always refer to places like Bryant Park. Hey, the Bryant Park that I visited when I came here in 1989 is nothing like the Bryant Park um, of today. And you can look, anybody can look themselves. Tim would often defend New York City by murder rates and say, yeah, there are a lot of murders here compared to some other places, but just look at the proportion. You know, actually he would always say that you're safer surrounded by a lot of people than, you know, in a in a in a less populated area. But there were two areas that I can at least say that the members of Redeemer Presbyterian Church would often tell me that they felt like that in the church's orientation of loving the city and caring for the city, that they saw real changes. One of them you've already cited were the prayers for the safety and prosperity of the city. But the second that I would add is the aftermath of the September 11th attacks in 2001. I had found that Redeemer had been studying Rodney Stark's work on the Roman Empire, and especially the plagues that had come through the city and the way the Christians had stayed. And I saw that as a fitting preparation that the Lord had done for what would happen with September 11th, that when everybody else might feel the temptation to flee, the instinct that Redeemer after September 11th was to stay. And we might stop and say, well, of course they did. What are you talking about? I mean, it's not like there were any other attacks. Well, how were they supposed to know that at the time? In fact, we all know the World Trade Center was attacked in the 1990s and then again. So it's not like they could have simply concluded, and of course, Osama bin Laden had not been caught for some time afterwards. So it's not like people could have assumed, oh, this is going to be a totally safe place. I mean, I think a lot of us still today might have that reflexive instinct in a public school. 
of like, oh gosh, I think about all the different things that have happened. Imagine that in New York City. But the fact that the city did not depopulate, the fact that, in fact, in, in some ways, the church enjoyed resurgence through that and in a lot of even national and international acclaim and, and appreciation. Think about the you know, famous World Series there with President Bush throwing out the first pitch. I mean, it was like the, the city and the, and the nation banded together in support. And I think we, we certainly should thank God for that and not take that for granted. And Redeemer was one of the highest profile, largest churches in the city at the time. Tim Keller spoke at the five-year anniversary to the families um, at President Bush's invitation. I, I don't think you could ever argue definitively about these things, but I can just tell you what those members thought, which was, we prayed like crazy for this city. And we feel like the Lord answered many of those prayers. Yeah. Final question, Colin, before I let you go. Uh, when, as I mentioned, I spoke with Tim uh, back in December uh, I asked him, you know, how do you want to be remembered? You know, what will be the legacy of Tim Keller? He was, uh, he was again, uncomfortable with that question and uh, said, I, I, you know, basically, I want to be, I'd, you know, I would love it if my grandchildren remembered who I am. Beyond that, you know, it's, it's in the Lord's hands. Um, and, and I accepted that answer uh, with the humility, which it was tendered, of course, but I ask you the same question, <laughs> maybe expecting a slightly different answer. I mean, um, t you know, Tim Keller wasn't a systematic theologian. You know, we don't have the, uh, you know, like like the Institutes of John Calvin. We, we, you know, we don't have the Institutes of Tim Keller. We don't have, you know, Herman Bavinck's um, systematic theology um, uh, in fact, we you know, in terms of a bibliography, it's actually fairly thin because he started writing books fairly late in life. Um, given all of that as context, what do you think Tim's legacy will be? It's a good, good, timely question. I was just working this um, uh, today on the message that he gave at the first meeting in May of 2005 for what became the Gospel Coalition. I've been working here since 2010. He described the ministry of Jonathan Edwards, and he described how Edwards held together three different aspects that have been hard for Reformed theologians to hold together ever since. The one aspect was cultural apologetics. The second was revivalism. The third was, was confessional orthodoxy. And as he was describing his hope for the Gospel Coalition of how it bring those things together and bring back that ministry of Edwards, I can't help but think that that's, that's what Tim did. Um, that's what he's brought together were, were his compassionate ministry through Hope for New York and his ministries of mercy, his cultural apologetics through his books, his, his missions in Oxford, the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics now as well. But then also his his deep commitment to to prayerful pursuit of personal and corporate revival, you know, toss in there his global church planting initiative through city to city, and all that influence. And I just stop and I think very practically that I know. I mean, I'm I'm planning for some travel and some speaking coming up, and I know that in any major city throughout just about the entire West that I want to visit. There is probably a church there 
that has either been started directly through Tim Keller's influence or has been indirectly influenced by him through his writing or his example or his teaching. That's quite a legacy. Um, I mean, we're so close to things to be able to see that out, but so much of the evangelical world that we inhabit today was something that God used Tim Keller to be able to accomplish. And I think that's why you've seen so much of this tremendous response from people that I'm not even, I don't know how many other leaders would elicit that kind of interest, um, which speaks to the way he's shaped our world. And I think so much for the better. Um, So yeah, I'll I'll go further than Tim's. I hope my grandchildren remember me, but um, it will be interesting in years to come. Uh, to see how that plays out. Yeah. Well, Colin Hansen, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for this book, uh, Tim Timothy Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation. Um, a great loss, of course, for you and for, uh, I would say, the entire evangelical church, but uh, uh, both he and you through this book and through uh, the, the Keller Center there uh, that uh, where you work— um, keeping his memory alive and keeping his work alive, keeping his legacy alive. Thank you so much. Thank you, Warren. Thanks for joining us today for this special episode of the Ministry Watch podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, there are a few things that you can do to help us grow. First, leave us a rating or share a review on your podcast app. You can post a link to this conversation on social media, or if you're old school, just tell a friend. However you do it, please know that I'm grateful and your efforts really do make a difference in helping us grow. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosell and Jeff McIntosh. We get technical, editorial, and administrative support here at Ministry Watch from Christina Darnell and Casey Suddeth. I'm your host, Warren Smith, and until next time, may God bless you.